On today's show, our guest is Chris Brikey. Chris embodies everything it means to go all in, and he's a person who truly knows what it means to go all in and win, but he also knows what it feels like to lose. Chris is a pioneer of the investment and personal finance space here in Australia, and he's the creator and founder of StockSpot, which was Australia's first 100% online investment advice and fund manager. Chris has over 21 years of investment experience, and he's a highly experienced trader and holds a degree in accounting and finance. But more importantly, he's lived through the bloodbaths of the dot-com boom and bust and the 2008 crash and everything else in between. He's articulate and well thought out and easy to understand explanations of complex financial questions make him a sought after guest. And it's my pleasure to have him on the Go All In podcast today. I'm excited he's here. So please help me in welcoming Chris Brikey. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass and this is the Go All In podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Chris. Welcome to the Goal In Podcast, mate. It's great to have you here. Great to be on the show. Awesome, mate. Well, I like to start off all of my shows with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz that helps warm us up, calms the nerves down a little bit, and maybe your friends and family at home listening will learn something about you that they don't already know. It's pretty random in no particular order. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Sure, let's do it. All right, man. Do you prefer the, do you prefer the beach or the bush? Uh, definitely the beach. Growing up on the beach. So, yeah, that's my preference. Whereabouts? Where do you grow up? I uh, grew up always going to either Manly Beach or my grandparents have a place on the Central Coast. So, yeah, I have friends with farms, but I'll, I'll pick um, beach in any day of the week. We live on an island, man. You've got to go to the beach and swim. Well, that's true. Yeah. I, mean, we, I think most of the holidays I go on are to islands, mainly because my, my wife loves beach holidays rather than anything else. Um, I love the snow as well, but I haven't been able to do too many skiing holidays recently. Not enough time, too much work. Good, good. Cool. All right, mate, do you prefer uh, cardio or weights? Uh, cardio, always. So yeah, I have a brother who's obsessed with weights. I, I guess I'm the family member that yeah would much prefer to do a run or a swim or, or yeah get out there and be active outside rather than stick in the gym. Nice one. Nice one. Mate, can you ride a motorbike? I don't. No, I've, I've never ridden. Well, I have on farms, but yeah, never any more dangerous than that. So, no. Ne- you never had the, the desire to get on a 1,000cc sports bike and tear around Sydney? Not really, no. I can't say I'm, I'm too much of a motorhead. Yeah, cars as well. Um, yeah, yeah, not something I focused on too much. What was your first car? First car, it's a good question, was a Holden Barina, which I, which I inherited or I think bought for a nominal amount from my oh. grandparents. And then I actually really struggled to get rid of at any price. So I think in the end, I, I donated it for uh, scrap metal. And I think give I the beep beep Barina away. Yeah, that's it. So, but it was still functioning really well. My grandma took care of it for a long time. Yeah, I think the decision came when I started dating my now wife and, and, and she looked at it and said, look, I, yeah, can't date, I can't date you any longer if you keep on driving that Barina, so I have to upgrade. Uh, I remember I had a, I had a Holden Barina too when they came out. They were all the, the fads. It was kind of a bit of a revolution in cars in Australia when those things came because there'd be nothing like that, cheap, cheap, affordable and whatnot. And at the time, I was in the army and I'm this big, tough infantry paratrooper soldier and I'd drive in the gate in this red beep, beep Barina and everybody like, the hairdresser's here. <laughs> 
<laughs> I copped yeah, well, for that for years, man, for years. Well, I feel like I've upgraded from one hairdresser's car to another because I, <laughs> I upgraded to the car that I still have, which is an old um, Audi TT, one of the originals. And so, yeah, I, I get teased a little bit that, um, yeah, that, that I'm still a hairdresser. That's the North Shore hairdresser's car. That, that's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a few more clients there. Nice one. All right, uh, have you ever been skydiving, mate? I have. I have once uh, in Fiji. I, I did a great skydive, which was amazing because it was down to a little island that it um, only looked like a speck when you jump out of the plane and, and you wonder how they can possibly land in, in something so small. But somehow we landed. And, um, yeah, skydived and, and then bungee jumped in New Zealand as well. So Very nice. Very all nice. of my extreme sports are yeah, overseas, I think. Cool. Ever been scuba diving? I have. It's actually one of my favorite things to do. So um, it's your next? Uh, when I backpacked before I started work, I did a lot of um, scuba diving around Central America. So I learned to sky, I learned to scuba dive in uh, Honduras and Belize, um, which, and I think to this day, Honduras has been probably my favorite or second favorite place to scuba. Top would have to be Sipadan, which is in Malaysia, in, near Borneo, and, and it's mm-hmm. un- unbelievable. The, some of the best marine life you'll ever see. There's like a two-kilometer drop-off off the island that you scuba off, and, and it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, those volcanic islands in the middle of the Indian or Pacific Ocean are pretty epic. Hey, I remember it must have been 14 or 15, we're in the Solomon Islands. And same thing, volcanic islands straight out of the trenches in the Pacific Ocean. And you're on the continental shelf only goes for a couple of hundred meters. And the, I remember the drift dives there coming down the side of the reef and then turning around and looking and thinking, well, that's a bit of a drop off and it looks like a cliff. And you swim over and peek over to into the abyss into a you know a trench that's a thousand kilometers or thousand meters deep sort of thing it's a kilometer deep there and waiting for the monster to come up and and grab your type thing yeah it's insane well we were hoping to see those monsters so i I think one of the famous animals at sipadan (laughs) is the hammerhead sharks that you can see the shadows of them if you look down over the abyss so (laughs) the two times i've been i've been hoping to see a hammerhead but unfortunately yeah neither time did i see one no sharks. I can remember in the Solomon Islands being on the bottom at about 30 meters and looking back up the reef, you know, as in, it's like a, like an angled reef back up and seeing all the barracuda swimming across the top of the reef and they're swimming kind of down chasing the fish and big schools of them, you know, like 30, 40 barracuda chasing these fish around and just yeah, sitting on the bottom and watching. With all their teeth and oh, yeah, you, you don't want to get in their way. Amazing. Amazing. And they're big too, you know, as big as a, as a grown man, six, eight feet long sort of thing and fast in the water. It's really cool experience. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Next one. Uh, tell me mate in the finance industry, who's your biggest influence? Another great question. I, I would have to say, um, you know, Mr. Bogle, who was the founder of Vanguard. So you know, he, he was someone that started a business in the seventies. And when he started it, no one wanted to hear about it. You know, everyone thought that to, to do well in the stock market, you have to find smart people to pick stocks. And he said, he flipped that idea on the head and, and said, look, no, you don't need to do that. You just need to own the whole market. Um, and when he first launched his company, I think he, he couldn't sell the funds to anyone. There was absolutely no interest. And, and today, you know, what is it, 50 years on, it's, I think, the second biggest fund manager in the world. And, and I think the concept's pretty widely recognized as the right way for everyone to invest. So, yeah, pretty inspirational guy. Yeah, your industry is an interesting one because there's so many, uh, there's so much history there. And that history is like a hundred years old sort of thing. So it's recent and you can go back and look at those case studies and see what they've done. And you can study people throughout history and see what works and whatnot. Some industries like I've been in for a long time in the digital marketing space, there's not much you can refer to in the past and what the hell's coming down the pipeline. I've got really no idea. I've got some idea of AI, the internet of things and all of that sort of stuff, but really, you know, that's kind of trying to predict the future 
So yeah, well, yeah, I thought I thought that with investing, something I, I learned recently, which some people may not be aware of, is a lot of the history that people read about in, in markets has actually been invented or reconstructed. So um, a lot of stats you might see around the Dow Jones index in the you know, 1700s or 1800s. Well, actually, a lot of these indices didn't exist back then. And, and so they basically tried to work out what it might look like, which nobody really knows if that's the case. So, yeah, it, it's not always real history. But, yeah, people definitely quote it all, all the time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, standard interesting podcasting question. If you had the opportunity to go back in time for 10 minutes and revisit anybody, who would you visit and what would you say? You only got 10 minutes. That has to be pretty important. Oh, 10, 10 minutes to go back in history. Wow. I think, that, I mean, there's a, probably a few moments in history it would have been great to just be around for, um, you know, mainly just because there were times that the whole world sort of came together. I always kind of look back at the sort of moon landing videos and thought it would have been great to be around then, um, mm. you know, just because it felt like it was a moment, like the whole world, you know, was all watching the TV at the same time. And, you know, humanity realised anything was possible and, and there was just a big, you know, a big positive feeling, you know, within the whole world. So I, I would have loved to be there back then. I don't know what you, I would have said. You, you um, old romantic. would have been... That's like romantic. would have sat at the bar and, and been having a beer and, and been, you know... Yeah, I don't know, just kind of stuck in the moment. It's cool. But yeah, it would have been amazing. You've seen it replayed on TV and in movies all the time. But yeah, yeah I think yeah. actually have been there would have been, would have been amazing. And, and there's, a, uh, there's a movie coming out with Ryan Gosling called First Man. He plays Neil Armstrong. Did you know that? Okay, no, I didn't, I didn't know that was coming yeah, out. Yeah, I saw the Google it. Sure, my wife will be looks, 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 if Ryan Gosling's in it. <laughs> yeah, it looks really, really awesome. And uh, I think maybe we get to experience something similar to what you're describing in the next sort of five, maybe 10 years with people going to Mars. Well, that's it. I think in our lifetimes, there'll be the equivalent sorts of moments that our, our kids and grandkids will say, oh, I wish I was around for that. The same sort of leaps forward. But yeah, I mean, in terms of sort of outer space stuff, there hasn't really, I think when that happened, a lot of people thought, oh, the leaps will come, you know, in, in you know, come a lot quicker now and, you know, we'll see Mars landings and people populating overseas. And it led to a lot of creativity and mm. fantastic movies and, and that sort of thing. But actually, you know, the, the progress has actually probably slowed, I think, from what people would have seen. Yeah, that's because we, we mastered low Earth orbit and it just costs so much money to get into space. But that space race is back on now with all of the incredible things that are coming now. And um, there's a lot of stuff that's not out there in the public domain. I know a lot about this because I'm an aviator. And there's a lot of stuff about Boeing that Boeing are about to launch where it's like reusable rockets. There's a lot of stuff from the UK with the Sabre engines and the Sabre projects that make access to space really, really cheap. So we're definitely going to see that coming back in the, uh, in the early 2020s and certainly in the early 2030s as well. So very yeah, I think like any industry, when the cost comes down and makes it accessible for more people, that's when, you know, there's that's a huge board and, you know, whether it's being able to buy a TV or like you say, go to, go to outer space when, when the cost can get to the point where almost anyone can do it, that's when technology gets very exciting. I recently bought a drone and I feel like that's kind of hit that sort of space where, um, you know, as a toy, it's now a you know, semi-justifiable toy to your, to your family and, and you can get a good fun out of it. But it's something, you know, you would have never been able to buy 10 years ago, you know, for, you know, a reasonable price. Yeah, it's a really interesting time that we live in. It's the some say it's the third industrial revolution, and it's exactly what you describe when that when the price of things comes down to almost nothing. And an example of that is when the cost of energy comes down to almost nothing. Energy companies don't make money from making producing energy anymore in Europe, in Germany, and in Denmark, and in the EU. As we move forward into the future, they're almost at a hundred percent green energy. It's mm. amazing. So the cost of the energy comes down. 
So how does an energy company make money? They make money by with distributed technology and by putting solar panels and reusable batteries and things like that throughout a system and a network and that network spreads and that happens like that. So really interesting yeah. times that we're, we're living in. Yeah, not, not the only industry. I, I, there's a great book um, I read called uh, Zero Marginal Cost Society, which is yeah. sort of talking about this. Um, which is know, exactly um, that, yeah. Across all different industries, you know, Amazon's the perfect example in retail, but mm-hmm. even in our industry, you know, investing, there are now businesses in the US, um, not Australia yet, but in the US that offer free brokerage. And, you know, this was a, mo- a model no one would have conceived uh, would be possible 10 or 20 years ago, but because essentially the marginal cost of offering a trade is close to zero in the US, businesses have decided to give it away for free and, and try and monetize their customers or earn revenue in other ways. And, so I think we'll continue to see this across all sorts of industries. Which, yeah, it's yeah, a really interesting thing. Like a, a winner-takes-all sort, of, yeah. winner sort of game in a lot of industries. Yeah, absolutely. I've been doing a, I've been doing a bit of work for another company who uh, runs some magazines, some hard copy magazines, and uh, doing their podcasting and do a lot of video for them and whatnot as well. And when you look into it of what's happened to journalism, and it's that zero cost thing is because people get their news from different places, from social media and from other places, not from reputable news outlets. It's actually completely killed the journalism industry. So I think the statistic was, I was reading something like 63,000 people were employed in journalism 10 years ago. And there's something only like 22,000 people employed in journalism. It's just the industry has completely gone away. Yeah, I mean, there's, and, e- there's ethical questions, I guess. I mean, it's the same in retail. You've seen a lot of mum and pop sort of type shops decimated around the world because of Amazon. And you know now everyone has access to the internet on their phones. It's so easy to compare prices and, and work out if you can get the same thing at a, at a cheaper rate. You know, I think that one of the interesting sort of ethical dilemmas is that a business like Amazon that isn't making a lot of profit um, actually doesn't pay them a lot of tax. And so it's not actually sort of supporting society in the same way as that a lot of those mum and pop businesses were. Now, that might change in the future when, when they start to you know, try and build a margin into their product that actually captures some profit. But it's making it quite difficult for you know, you know, countries around the world to work out how do you tax companies that actually don't have a profit incentive. You know, mm-hmm. Amazon you know, has made it quite clear that they just want to grow their revenues and not make any profit. So you know, you've got them in the US competing against businesses like Walmart who are trying to make a profit. But, but Walmart's disadvantaged because they have to pay away tax. And you know, it's an interesting question, I think. You know, even the Australian government has had to try and work out how do we tax these big global companies, you know, because more Aussies are actually using them to transact. And, and it's a tough question. It's a really good opportunity for consumers, I believe, and for entrepreneurs and business owners when you take that big high level 40,000 macro view of it like that, because it takes a long time for governments and regulation to catch up. So meanwhile, make hay while the sun shines. I reckon that's the oh, most interesting sure. part about and it. And there's so many businesses that have. I mean, Co- yeah. you know, Kogan in Australia is a great example. Oh, yeah. Someone that just saw a, a brilliant opportunity that, you know, there was a pricing discrepancy between Australia and, and other countries. And, and he was able to work out in all sorts of different products how he could, you know, I think they describe it as grey import products that yep. were identical to products that people would pay a lot more for in Australia. And he realised Aussie consumers, that you know, they don't care whether they're, you know, their Apple product comes from Singapore or Australia or the US. If it's the same product, it's the same product. So just give us the best price. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's lots of entrepreneurs that have identified awesome opportunities 
um, cool. you know, because of it. Well, I think you and I can uh, have a, a long and deep podcast conversation, not about the goal in topic, but about this. And we should maybe think about revisiting that because it's interesting. And if you haven't heard some of that stuff about that zero margin and the cost and industrial revolution and things like that, that's a really interesting topic for people. But I'll include some links in the show notes to that stuff. So if people want to watch and listen to that stuff in their own time, they can. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Chris. It's really cool to get, get to know you a little bit like that as well. Well, people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Well, I've had a few Go in, All In moments in my life. And I think, I mean, the benefit of going all in is one way or another, you always learn, you know, learn from going all in. So for, for me, probably the first time I went all in in my life was, and it's winding back a few years now, but I started trading shares at a pretty young age. I, I was pretty lucky. My my um, you know, dad sat me down one day and said, hey, look, this is how the stock market works and, and I'm going to give you some money to invest in the stock market. Um, I, I later found out that that money was theoretical, but you know, that was after he, yeah, after he told me he wasn't actually giving the money to me. But, but as a result of that, I, I started learning about the share market and, and, and by the age of 12 or 13, I'd built up a bit of pocket money and, and I was actively trading stocks. I thought it was a pretty cool thing to be doing in you know, year six at school and, and year right. seven. At, Very cool. Um, so, and, and yeah, you, you know, you built up pocket money from doing the dishwasher or, you know, doing errands around the house. Or, you know, I, I used to do some tennis umpiring, which is how I sort of made my money. And, mm. and, and I got swept up in the internet boom of, you know, of, of 1998, 99, 2000. And, and having not been an experienced investor, I, I thought that this was a great way for me to multiply the, the very small amount of money I had at that point. But for me, it was, you know, it was all of my money, a couple of thousand dollars. And, so I started to follow lots of you know, internet.com stocks and read the newspaper and you know, go onto online forums to work out what was the, you know, the best strategies and the best shares to invest in. And I essentially decided, and I think this was in late 99, to go all in and, and invest all of my money in, into a couple of you know, .com shares that I thought were, um, you know, from everything I read, the future and you know, stocks that were going to continue to perform very well. Now, unfortunately and fortunately, I think, you know, going in at, at, at that point, you know, taught me some pretty hard lessons about investing. So for the listeners that, you know, didn't go through that time in history, around April 2000, the internet sort of what, what turned into the internet bubble burst and, and most internet stocks around the world fell very quickly, you know, not 10 or 20%, but 80, 90, 95% and many of them went bankrupt. And regardless of whether you owned a great company or a terrible company, you know, that that's what happened. So Going back to what we were just discussing Amazon, you know, many people would know Amazon as being um, one of the biggest companies and most successful companies in the world now. Um, but actually in, in 2000 and in 2001, when the internet bubble burst, Amazon share price fell over 90%. So it's not just terrible companies that fall when bubbles burst, it's mm. all companies that, that, that fall. And, and I was caught up in the same. So I'd invested most of my money in a little dot-com company uh, which was called Image. Um, now, this was a, a company that promised to revolutionise online advertising. And you know, in 1999, I, I don't think there was really such thing as the online advertising industry. But you were way um, ahead of your time, man. But I thought you know there was a great opportunity. You know, I saw all of my friends at school spending more time on the internet, and thought you know surely this is an area where advertising is going to work. Yeah. So I, I put all of my savings into the, this share, and, and yeah, when the internet bubble burst. I lost, you know, I think something like 90% of my money, um, you know, which was a, a small amount of money, but it hurt as a kid that had saved that all up. 
um, and, and ended up sort of giving up, I think, around late 2000, 2001, when I, I questioned whether my thesis and my ideas were even right. And, and I think for all investors, you know, that's something, a mental sort of thing you go through. When you lose a lot of money, you start to question whether you're right. So I ended up selling that share and, and you know, wallowing in my sadness and realizing that I probably did now need to go to school and, and go to university. I, I realized that day trading wasn't as easy as I thought. But it did, I mean, it did teach me a few good lessons, I think, that I've carried forward to, you know, my business and, and my investing. Um, you know, one of them is that it's, it's just so hard to predict, you know, what markets are going to do, you know, in sort of short periods of time that going all in just generally, you know, isn't a very smart thing to do when you're investing. So, you know, it, it may be, and, and we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss it later, going all in may make sense from a career perspective or, you know, in other parts of your life. But when it comes to your money, markets are unpredictable. And, and that's something that I learned. Nobody has any control over markets and markets don't care whether you have a share or whether you don't. Markets just operate in, in a, you know, a way that you know, nobody really understands. And so you know, I realized that it was important you know, to consider that you know, anything can happen in markets and, and putting all of your money in one share, regardless of how confident um, you are about that company, you know, doesn't really ever make sense. And I think that's something I've carried forward know pretty much since then and and if anything it was pretty lucky that i learned it as a kid you know only losing a few thousand dollars because you know i've seen lots of friends and you know and other people who actually don't learn that lesson until a lot later in life and they'll go all in on some sort of investment you know a hot tip that they've heard from a friend or you know i had a lot of friends that got very excited about cryptocurrency at the end of last year or the start of this year and decided it was where all of their savings you know deserve to be and it's a lesson that, you know, becomes more expensive as, as you get older in life and, and actually is one to, you know, to, to learn early that investing isn't about going all in. Um, you know, it's actually about spreading, you know, spreading your money across all sorts of different things, you know, because different things do well at different times. I think investing is one of those things that messes with the psychology of your brain for some reason. And when you first learn about it, a little bit of information can be a bit, it's great. Information is great, but it can be dangerous because when you have a couple of early wins, you think it's skill. But then when you exactly. get your fingers burnt a little bit, it's like, oh, then you question everything you do and am I doing the wrong thing? And it's, it's so the, the spectrum of left and right of emotions is so damn big when you're first starting out and learning those things. Can you just take me back for a second? When you decided to put it all on black on that company back in 1999, were you confident? Were you, you felt like you'd done enough homework? I mean, the resources available to you back then are completely different to the resources that are available now, but you make decisions based on the information that's in front of you at the time. And at the time, you had all of the information to make a decision. You made one, you were like, oh, okay, bugger it, I'm going to do it. Was that your process? Is that how you went through it? Well, yeah, I think you've touched on a couple of really important points there. First of all, like, yes, I think what you described it as putting everything on black in retrospect was accurate. That's what I was doing. I was gambling. Mm. Um, However, as a young kid that thought, um, you know, thought he knew everything about investing and at that time I'd probably spend a couple of years reading books and, and looking at online forums, I thought I knew everything about, you know, this industry this company was working in. I thought I knew everything about trading and markets. And, and you know, in retrospect, I, I didn't, but it's something it's very hard for people to know. And like you say, when you, when you have a little bit of information in any area of life, there's a tendency to think that you know everything. Um, and, and that's actually because of, like you say, a, a bit of a behavioral bias people have, which is that you don't know what you don't know. And, and so it's very hard for people to consider that the information that they have, they have in possession, 
um, is actually only a, a drop in the ocean compared to all of the information out there. And yeah. you know, when, when you start learning about any industry, you know, whether it's you know, you know, learning about you know, um, you know, automotive industry or you know, the investing industry, you know, the, the first bits of information you learn do give you a lot of confidence that you know everything. But it's only you know, much later that you actually become you know, a, a real sort of expert in the industry. And I think this causes all sorts of other issues. Um, you know, one of them, I think, is in, in investing. If you speak to someone who's an expert and ask them their opinion on something, they usually won't have a strong opinion because they'll be experienced enough to know that you know, anything can happen. And, and you know, as an expert, that they know that a strong opinion usually isn't right. Yet when you look on TV and, and look at experts talking, you know, most, most people watching a finance expert, if, if they saw someone that said, look, I really don't know and it's difficult to know, there's so many factors, you'd probably assume that they've got no idea what they're talking about and they're actually not an expert. So, there's no fence sitting allowed, you see, that's why. Because they, exactly. want, they want you to be on one side or the other. They want you to pick a side. It's a bit of a paradox, but I'd, I'd, I'd explain to people, if you ever see some, someone extremely confident about something in investing, that person is probably not an expert. They're probably a beginner. And it's the people that know more that are usually more neutral or, you know, understand the different perspectives. So realize that, that you know, there isn't sort of one, you know, one right way necessarily. So I think there's a, there's a very big difference between knowing how a market works and understanding what affects supply and demand and prices going up and down and understanding the, the economics of a circumstance and understanding what's happening within a company as you're looking at a particular share. You know, there's a completely different kettle of fish there. There's no way you can predict the future about what that company is going to do, but you can kind of understand what's happening from an economic perspective, from a wider 50,000 foot view of something like that. Why do you think people get so caught up in particular, in, in the detail of like what you did there, you put it all on black, you went for all of that with all of that information. And in hindsight, I know that you're going to say, man, I should have just diversified and put, you know, all my money across 10, 15 different things, whatever. But why do you think people get so caught up in that one thing and thinking that that's the thing that's going to actually make them rich? Well, I mean, first of all, it's exciting. So, you know, there's a little bit of endorphins, I think, yeah. for people. You know, it's, it's pretty unexciting to diversify, I would say. And, and it's, it's something that's very difficult to explain to people is like boring when it comes to investing is brilliant. You, know, you actually want boring. If investing is exciting, you're not investing, you're gambling. Um, <laughs> but, but most people, I think, are confused by the difference between investing and gambling. And they, they think if their heart's beating fast and, and they're excited, then they're, they're onto a good investment. And also, I think there's a huge recency effect. So people will look at how well they've done recently or how well their friends have done recently and, and really extrapolate that, you know, into the indefinite future. Um, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency at the end of last year was a great example where, you know, it created a sort of level of momentum because people would find out that their friends have made money and they'd look at their friends and say, that, how'd that idiot make money? Like if he can make money or she can make money, anyone can make money and I'm going to, I'm going to invest in this thing. And, in investing, that's that's called like the castle in the sky theory, which is that there's no real value to this thing. It's just the momentum of people buying that cause it to go up and down. And it creates excitement. It, it creates FOMO because you don't want to miss out. And, and so, you know, people, their emotions basically completely overwhelm any sort of rational thought at that point. And you think it won't happen to you, but you know, even people that understand this, it still happens to them. So it, it's one of the difficult things about investing is, even if you know your weaknesses and your behavioral sort of weaknesses, it's still really difficult to overcome them and, and do well. And that's why, yeah, the, the best investors in the world are the ones that have, you know, done their 10,000 hours and, 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 you know, experienced a lot of losses as well, because, you know, you do, I, I think as, as someone that's been a trader and, and now invest, you know, 
on a much longer term time frame for clients that it's really only experience that you learn from in, in investing. And it's probably other areas of life as well. People can tell you as much as they want about, you know, your first relationship or, you know, your first, all sorts of different experiences, but until you actually experience it, um, you know, there's no way of really knowing what it's like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've got to have those feelings yourself and understand what it is, is yourself. So, so take me on the journey. You, you lose, you lose your shirt early on, which is kind of a good thing. It's better than losing your shirt when you're in your forties or fifties, cause it's more expensive. As you say, you go to university, you do your degree, you start working in the finance space. Gosh, your dad had a big influence on you there, right? Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, he, my dad's not an investor by any stretch of the imagination. He, he sort of managed his own money over the years and just thought it was a useful thing to teach his kids that, you know, mm-hmm. this is how a share market works. And, you know, this, awesome. this is over the long run, a great way to sort of build wealth. And, you know, yeah. uh, and I always thought that was fascinating as a kid. I think, you know, the main reason I became more curious was because I lost money and, and, you know, probably for the wrong reasons, I was like, I need to make that money back. So I need to learn. <laughs> You know, I, I'm down, I'm down a few grand now. So, you know, I, I want to make some money back, but also, yeah, it, it just made me sort of fascinated, um, you know, by all of the different, you know, different things that were playing into share prices. You know, I, I initially thought it was just, you know, what was going on in the company that was driving it. But I think that moment in my life made me realize there's much bigger forces that drive markets that are, you know, totally out of your control and, and, and forces sometimes that you're not even thinking about. So, you know, who would have thought in 2007 that property prices in the US could could affect banks in Finland or, you know, um, you know, one one small, you know, impact in one market can have a huge sort of butterfly effect on everything. And, and I think that's what made, it made me realise. It humbled me because it made me realise that I actually know very little, but it made me very curious to learn more. So, um, like you said, yeah, I, I went to university and, and studied finance. I, I studied finance and accounting because I thought together that that's a pretty useful skill. You know, finance sort of teaches you how markets work, but often markets don't work rationally and, you know, they, they, they can do all sorts of crazy things. And at least if you understand accounting over the long run, you know, companies, you know, go back to their financials, you know, companies mm-hmm. can't you know, trade on crazy valuations forever. And, and eventually it always comes back to money. How much cash flow are they generating? How much profit are they generating? Yeah. So I think for anyone trying to understand markets, it's, it's pretty useful to have some sort of basic understanding of accounting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you worked in the finance space. And as you mentioned, right at the top of the show there, you went all in a couple of times. Tell us about Stockspot. Tell us that that's an all in proposition by itself, right? That's exciting, man. Well, that's right. I mean, there's not too many times in your life where, you know, you probably do go all in and your life is probably defined by a lot of those moments that you've mm-hmm. gone all in on. So yeah, the, the first moment for me was, was the story I told of, of losing a lot of my savings when I was younger. The, the next one was probably, you know, taking a grad job, a grad job. So, you know, deciding where your first job's going to be is a, is a big sort of all in decision because you can't really take it back and, and go and take a different job. And, and, you know, the people you meet and what you learn there are pretty influential. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest one for me then was actually leaving the business that I started as a graduate at and got all of my training and all of my learnings from and deciding, okay, now is the right time in my life to, to you know, risk it all, you know, to, to basically give up a salary, you know, to have no sort of backup option and to start a business. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and yeah, I think I was hardened by some of my experiences, you know, going all in the past and, and that actually kind of affected my thinking and in how I went about it. So you know, I was, you know, you think sort of leaving a job is, is a big risk and, and, you know, it's quite a risky thing to do. But a lot of the work I did in the year up to leaving my job was actually trying to de-risk that decision. 
so, you know, I, I kind of worked out, you know, what business model I wanted to, to launch. So I, I thought there was a great opportunity to launch a, a low cost online investing business. So that was my um, you know, business idea. But rather than just sort of spend a couple of weeks on it and, and then quit my job, I spent basically a whole year while I was at work thinking about this idea. You know, every night when I went to bed, I'd, I'd be sort of dreaming up sort of different problems that could happen and how I'd solve them or you know, different things I may not have thought about that, you know, may actually make my business idea terrible. And, and, and I spent a long time thinking about it, you know, sort of writing them down, you know, testing my ideas with friends. So that's something I, you know, I think is, is great for anyone looking to start a business to do is actually before you start the business, go test that you can actually find a few customers. Mm. Um, go find out that actually people care about your business idea because you know, I think a lot of business ideas people have, they might be great ideas, but if you can't find any customers, then the business idea isn't right for now or it isn't right for the market that you're in. So Absolutely. I've dealt a lot with that over the years in the digital marketing space and building websites for people and stuff in the startup space. And inevitably people have a big chunk of change and usually their savings. Um, that they want to spend with you and they want to, they want to tip in 30, 50 grand into building something. And they're like, Hey man, you need to bring this to life for me and show me how to market and get sales and leads and do all of that. And it's like, before, before you do anything, let's just back up a minute, right? Let's find the market and then match the message to the market instead of creating the message and then trying to create a market. It just doesn't make any sense to do that. You know, it's, 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 it's not even marketing. It's not even, it's just sales one-on-one. If you've got a widget to sell, make sure people want to buy your widget before you actually go and try and sell it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's noble. It's noble of you to actually do that like that because yeah. I think a lot of sort of marketing businesses will just take the money and, and spend it. You know, so yeah. And I think, I mean, testing ideas also, people have this idea that to actually launch a product, it's very expensive because you have to build it. It has to be polished. Exactly. It has to be perfect. Yeah. You know, because unless you have a polished, perfect product, you're not going to be able to actually see whether people want it. And that's something I kind of have realized in setting up a business completely isn't true. Mm. Your first version of your product can be extremely raw and rough, rough. you know, know, pretty ugly looking product. And if it's actually a good idea, you'll be surprised. There'll still be customers that want your very early rough kind of ugly version of your product because it will actually solve a problem for them. So, you know, for me, that was, I used to have a few friends that would come to me and, and also my wife as well, that had some money saved up and would come to me knowing that I work in the investment industry saying, what should I do with my money? And my answer, you know, would always, you know, be the same thing. That's look, my experience from investing tells me that the most important things to do is to diversify, you know, to spread your risk and, and then to keep your costs as low as possible. So don't go see an advisor or, you know, don't go buy some expensive sort of funds you know, you want to make sure that your money's you know spread broadly and, and your costs are low. And the best way to do that, I I would find some low cost funds for them on an online broker and say, look, I think you know these are the right ones for you to buy. I think this is the right amount to put in each of these things. And then over time, I think this is how you could manage this you know this portfolio of investments in a sensible way. But that as a business never existed. So I, I was always scratching my head, going, look, if, if I'm solving this problem for all my friends, and, and this actually is the right way for people to invest. Why don't people know about it? You know, why isn't there a business that solves it for people? But yeah, I guess the point is like, I I didn't actually need to build my product to test that, you know, for the first few and and they, yeah, there were the first few, I guess, clients of my business weren't actually clients of of my business. It was me solving a problem for a few of my friends using not my business at all. It was using other pieces from around the, around the traps that I could use to piece together a solution. Um, Yeah. And I think a lot of businesses you can solve same way, whether it's a shop or, you know, 
you know, something, yeah, as small as a corner store to, you know, something as large as a global business is, is you can scrap together a, a basic version and test it before you actually invest a lot of money into it. I had exactly the same experience with my brother. We have a software company together called Serpworks and uh, he's an SEO guy. And in the days, a couple of years ago when SEO was huge, it was a big thing. It's not, not as big as it used to be um, now. It's still there, of course, but I can remember we, we sat in this little office and he faced out the window and I kind of faced the wall in an L shape. And one day he kind of like push, pushes his chair back from the desk and he's like, there's got to be a better way. And I'm like, better way of what? And, and he said, look at my screen. And there's, look over at his screen. He's got about 30 tabs open. And he's like, see all these things. I'm doing this research for this client and I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to make this happen. And I said, well, why don't you just like create a bit of software that solves that problem? And there we go all the way down the rabbit hole. We go in this solution for SEO and create the world's best SEO tool. And the byproduct of that was, um, it's exactly what you said, you know, people coming to you with a problem and he had the problem himself and he created the tool to solve the problem for himself, to be more efficient, to make himself sound like more of a ninja on the phone when somebody would ring up and say, hey, I need a hand with SEO, can you help? And he opened the tool and he'd say, you know, this is how you'd solve the problem. And then over time, we, we built that thing and found some customers. And it wasn't just my brother that had the problem, it was hundreds of other people that had the problem. We got lots and lots and lots of customers as a result of that. And it was a good example of the market was already there. We just created something to solve the problem in the market. And that's all good and well for me and you to sit here on a podcast and say that and throw it out there. But that's a very hard thing to do in theory. But with digital marketing, you can research that a lot because you can do a lot of keyword research to see what people are searching. You can understand what the advertising costs would be. And then you can work a business model from backwards from doing that. And I've done that very successfully for many businesses. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's ways for all businesses to de-risk your businesses. And, and usually, yeah, you're solving problems that exist already as opposed to kind of in, inventing needs for people. Yeah. Um, you know, the best, the best businesses are solving real inconveniences people have or real problems they have and just doing it in, in, a, in a slightly different way. And Yeah, it was another thing I learned in de-risking my business and, and having the confidence to actually leave my job and start it was, was actually you know, a good test to see whether your business is a good idea is seeing if it's worked anywhere else in the world. Cause mm. you know, not many people are the, are the first person to come up with an idea. And, and, and if you are, you're brilliant and that's fantastic. But a lot of great ideas are actually ideas that already exist in some format out there. You know, they just don't exist, you know, in your market or, mm. you know, they don't exist close to you. So, you know, another way that I sort of tried to de-risk, you know, the, you know, going all in on a business was actually researching around the world. Who else is sort of solving this problem? Is anyone solving this problem? How are they doing it? Um, and in going on that, that journey, I actually discovered there were a few, you know, quite early stage businesses at that point in the US, in Europe and, and the UK, who had actually started quite similar ideas to what I had as an idea. And, and they'd managed to raise venture funding and they were starting to get good traction with customers. So, you know, I think there was a few things combined, you know, that actually gave me a lot more confidence to go all in. Nice. You know, it's a lot easier to say in retrospect when, you know, things have worked out. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that, you know, also de-risk projects that, that might not work out. But I do think, you know, it, it gives you a lot more confidence in your heart to kind of go all in on something. If you've thought, you know, quite long and hard around, you know, what are all the, you know, what are all the possible ways this could play out? Because I think a lot of people get caught up in the moment when they have a great idea you know, or they have that sort of inclination to go all in on something. And that sort of, you know, that's a very powerful feeling, which makes it very tempting to do it very quickly. Um, or, you know, just to go all in straight away, you know, where really timing isn't usually that important. It's usually around your execution on whether you're going to be successful. So you've usually got a bit of time to actually test, you know, first of all, whether going all in at all is the right idea. 
Well, it sounds like the initial time that you got burnt in 1999, you were as methodical as you could be. You'd done as much homework as you could. You did everything that you could and you put it all on black, so to speak. And this time around, you did the same thing. You did as much homework as possible. You looked around. You spent a year with the idea before you took the leap and actually deployed it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's just You're right. I mean, often it's just luck as well. And, and I think people underestimate the luck factor in all sorts of, you know, moments in their life, you know. And I think it's one of the problems with us in society having a group of sort of successful entrepreneurs that everyone looks up to is, you know, often a lot of the factors that led to them being successful were just sort of random luck. And yeah. and that also means that success in one area doesn't always mean they're necessarily going to be successful with business idea number two. I mean, I, I think Facebook is a, you know, is a great example. Like Zuckerberg, you know, was brilliant at building Facebook. But that doesn't necessarily mean if he started business number two or number three, you know, if, if the timing wasn't right or the industry wasn't right, doesn't mean they'll necessarily be successful. And I think totally. there's been some great studies, I think, done in the US that actually show this, that CEOs of successful businesses, if they actually move into a totally different industry, their probability of success is, is not really significantly different just from any other non-successful CEO. So, yeah, I mean, often luck does play a big factor. Yeah. Well, you, you sat with your idea for a year and then you finally took the leap. How long was it before it was validated for you and you got some traction? Well, the first year yeah, was basically me sitting at home, um, you know, working on the idea. So I, I'd managed to rope in a friend who was helping me. I'm not technical. And so he was helping me sort of build the first kind of very rough um, version of the product. Mm -hmm. And, and, and yeah, I mean, as opposed to the first time when I went all in, where it was basically putting all of my chips on the table, you know, I'd worked out this time that I, that because I had a bit of savings built up, I had a bit of time, you know, it wasn't, you know, put everything all in for a month. And if it doesn't work out, I have to go, you know, get a job again. I, I realized, look, I had, you know, a couple of years that I could kind of put into this. And at the end of the couple of years, you know, I, I might still not know if, if it's successful, but as long as I could raise a little bit of money, that would allow me to continue to test and validate and, you know, maybe hire a, a person. So, you know, my, my goal up for that first year in working for myself and, and setting it up at home was by the end of that year, I said, look, I, I don't want to have to be still paying um, all of my expenses out of my own savings after a year. By one year, I, I want to be to the point where I can at least convince one person to invest in my idea. And if I can't convince one person in, in one year, I'll let it go. Like, it's not a good idea. I should probably go back to, to work. So, yeah, I spent a year trying to build you know, the, the product to the point where I could convince an investor to, to give us some money. Now, now as it turned out, it would... After about, it was almost exactly a year when we managed to rope in our very first investor. Um, and at that point, we didn't even have a single customer because you know, setting up an investment business is pretty difficult. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles. You know, oh, we needed to get a license. Mm, licenses. That, that was going to be quite costly. So we hadn't quite got there, but we had done a lot of work around the idea, you know, building what the product would look like, discussing with different partners how they'd work with us. And by that point, um, yeah, I, I found a, an investor who liked the concept that we were working on, um, who had seen the successes in other countries around the world and seen that it might be an idea that would work in Australia. And, and they were prepared to, to back us, to take us to that next step, which took a lot of financial pressure off me because my, my personal bank balance was getting drained very quickly, month to month. And you know, as much as that's a great incentive to work hard, you know, it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a pressure when, you, you know, you, you've got to pay rent and you've got other as well. So, so yeah, we, we were lucky after a year, we managed to convince one investor to give us, you know, what was quite a, not a huge amount of money, but enough to hire a few people. So we raised $250,000. Wow. 
So, you know, probably akin to, you know, what someone would try and pitch for on Shark Tank or, yeah. you know, from an early stage investor. Nice. And yeah, with, with that, basically, it took a little bit of pressure on me, off me. You know, 250000 doesn't last a long time when sort of trying to build a, you know, a big national business, but it allowed me to you know, hire one person and start to you know, not be draining my own expenses. So I still wasn't paying myself a salary at that point, but I was at least able to pay someone else a salary <laughs> and, and able to, you know, pay the basics like rent and, and, you know, our electricity, um, not out of my own bank balance. Um, oh, nice so, one. Nice one. And, and, so that, and then it was shortly after that, we actually got our first customer. So oh, nice. we told that investor that within a couple of months we were ready to launch and, you know, we, we were accurate on that prediction. So we were able to launch, you know, a, it was around sort of mid 2014. And that was another scary moment because I think anyone dreams, you know, when, when you launch a business and you put a lot of effort into it, as soon as everyone, you know, as soon as you launch, everyone will hear about it and, and you'll have lots of customers straight away. Um, but that, that definitely wasn't our experience. Our experience was we launched and, you know, without telling anyone, still nobody knew about our business. So you, know, you realize that as a, as a founder or as someone that sort of started a business, you know, you're the only person that cares about your business and therefore you're the only one that, that it's going to go around and sort of tell everyone about your business. So the first year was really, I was quite involved in just sort of spreading the word about what we were doing, you know, not only to customers, but to, you know, the news, um, you know, news media, you know, even to competitors, you know, we didn't care who, who knew about our business. We just wanted more people to know about it. So they talked about it. Um, well, well you, na- you nailed that perfectly, you know, as a digital marketer for the last 10 years, you know, the thing that, the most common thread that I see is people ask me all the time, you know, what's the secret source to digital marketing? And for some reason, people think that Facebook is a magic bullet or Google is a magic bullet, but they're all magic bullets and they all, they all play a part. They all play a role in various different forms. And when somebody asks me to try and generalize, it's, it's a little bit like when people ask you, Hey man, I've got 20,000 bucks. What should I put it in? And you go, well, you should diversify and you should put it in these different things. And they're like, well, that's a boring answer. I didn't want that one. Tell me where yeah. am I going to make, you know, 15% tomorrow? Like that's what they're looking for. And the same is true in marketing. And the generalization that I give is that every business suffers from exactly the same problem. And it's just obscurity. Nobody knows who you are. If more people mm-hmm. who you were and you were able to convey your message in a more succinct way, then you'll attract more customers. And mm. that's, that's what the hustle and grind is of the startup on the front end of the business there. And it sounds like you were really going through that for the, for quite a while in your business and that. So as you gather a bit of momentum, you get some media behind you, it starts to blossom into something. How long are you in the business before you go, man, this is actually really getting somewhere. Are you, are you two and a half years into it? Oh, probably not even that far. I mean, the, I think like what, what you say was completely accurate is, I mean, especially since we didn't have a budget, we didn't have the benefit of, of really doing proper digital marketing as, mm. as you know it. And, and actually yeah, I have to be out there recruiting user by user, you know, yeah. just speaking to people, speaking to the friends that I used to speak to before and saying, Hey, you know, you know, that problem you used to have, I've now got a business that will solve it. You know, you know how you kind of trusted me to help you before I had a business. Now you've got to trust this completely made up business that you've never heard of to, to solve the same problem. <laughs> well, all going to be all right. Yeah. Just just hand over your money to me and, and I'll look after it. So, yeah, I think, I mean, one of the first exciting moments for me was when we just had our first customer that I didn't know. I mean, for me, that, w- that was a pretty, pretty amazing moment because you go from, you know, putting all this effort into creating something, you know, your friends and family knowing about it and, you know, they trust you because they know you, you know, yeah. they know where you live. You know, there's other ways for them to get their money back. If they He's lose got it. my 20 grand. I'm coming for you. I know, got your phone number. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah, your, your family and friends, you know, they, they've got other leverage with you. But when, you, when it comes to actually getting an actual stranger to use your product, and it doesn't really matter what the product is, mm. I mean, I think for most business owners, that's a pretty exciting moment because you go, wow, like someone, someone who doesn't actually know me personally, like, you know, likes this idea or trusts this business. So, you know, for me, that was one of the, you know, one of the first moments was, you know, when this first user kind of used my product and I was, you know, the, the benefit of not having many users at the start is, is that you've got time to talk to them. And, you know, for the first, you know, first probably few dozen users we had, I, I mean, I personally contacted them and said, hey, how the hell did you hear about us? Like, you know, where are you coming from? Like, what made you sort of sign up? Like, you know, please tell me everything. Because ultimately I wanted to work out, you know, what was working, what wasn't, how, how are people discovering our business? So, you know, moment one was, yeah, getting customers that, you know, were, that I didn't know. Um, and then I think, I mean, as a, as an investment business, like you kind of hit like little milestones that, that are exciting. So, you know, our early investor, um, you know, when they gave us the $250,000, they said to me on day one, like Chris, you know, on the day that you get, get to a million dollars of funds that you're managing for people, we'll go out for a drink and we'll celebrate. And, nice. and when they said that to me, I, I always thought that was so far off. I was like, Oh, we're never going to reach that. Like, it's actually not that big. Away, like, yeah you know, this was month two or month, you know, month three where, you know, we only had a, a few users and mm. you know, maybe in the tens of thousands by that point. But, but yeah, sure enough, like that point sort of came and it, and it came probably, you know, within a few months still. So, you know, it, it came pretty quickly actually. Mm-hmm. And it, it's those sort of like lines in the sand that you draw for yourself on day one that sort of seem exciting back then. You know, now looking back, yeah, I mean, it, it, we see a lot more than that coming on a daily basis. So it, it's, mm. it, it wouldn't be an exciting milestone now. But yeah, for me, that was another exciting milestone when, when we hit a million dollars that we were managing for people. Well, that's the most, it's a very eloquent way that you articulate how it feels. And it just makes it all worthwhile. And it, and it shows you really in this, in this podcast, you've really shown me, you took me all the way down when you lost your shirt when you were a kid. And then you took me all the way back up when it really became worthwhile and, and why it's worthwhile because you really do get to help people. And I think being in business is, is a really important thing for people to experience because being able to employ somebody and give them a job is a really important thing. But then to deliver services, it just feels good. It feels really yeah, good to help people. I mean, you'd be able to sort of feel that feeling in, in teaching sort of people how to avoid you know, other mistakes that you might have made in, in yeah. you know, your industry. That right. Being able to speak to clients about how to avoid those mistakes is, is exciting because you're sort of sharing knowledge and empowering people to, you know, to do better than, than you might have done in the past. And I mean, I, I find that exciting as well. We see, you know, new clients join our business who, you know, I, I see going down the same path that I may have gone down in, in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess I said, you know, in the, it, that actually might not be a bad thing. You know, sometimes people actually need to lose a bit of money to kind of realize how hard it is. And a lot of the clients that we actually get are people who have tried to do it themselves and, and realize, oh shit, like this is harder than I thought. You know, I don't know as much as I thought I did. You know, maybe I do need a bit of help. So, you know, some people need to go on that journey. Um, but ultimately once that, you know, once they've decided that they need help to be able to kind of help them, you know, it, it is a great feeling. Nice. Beautifully said, beautifully said. Mate, well, there's a lot, there's a lot happening for you in your business. There's a lot of customers there. There's a, a, a nice pool of cash to, to manage there as well. I understand you had a, uh, a new baby as well recently. Tell me what's happening in the next 18 months, man. It's like the schedule and the calendar is getting busier and busier than ever. Well, yeah, you, you think that sort of managing a business from scratch is chaotic. I, I think I've now realized that, that that's nothing compared to having a baby and also sort of managing a business. So, you know, sleeping Welcome on the real chaos. Exactly. The real chaos starts now, you know, having only a few hours of sleep as I did last night, 
and, and then still trying to come into work and be productive and, and, and sort of build something, you know, that, that is a new challenge for me. I've heard from friends it doesn't last forever, the, the no sleeping bit. But, but, yeah, I mean, I think over the next 18 months for me, it will be focusing on, you know, just trying to remain awake and productive at work while having a little bar. But I'm fortunate that when I was a trader, um, you know, back in my share trading days, one of my jobs was actually to get up in the middle of the night and, and trade shares. So market. I actually feel like what I'm doing now is going back to my old schedule. And I used to set an alarm every two hours to get up and see how the markets were going overseas and trying to wake up enough to actually make sort of pretty big financial decisions. So <laughs> I think bottle feeding and, and nappy changing, it doesn't feel as stressful to me, even though you have to wake up. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're lucky now the business, I think I couldn't have had a baby a couple of years ago and, and actually run a business at the same time. Because when you're very early in the business, you have to do everything. You know, yeah. I was the, you know, I was the HR person and the marketing person and, and the business development person and the operations person. Um, now we have that, those people, you know, ac- actual people in an actual team that are much better than me at doing all of those things. So yeah. having that support is, is, you know, pretty helpful. And, I admire anyone that starts a business with like a young family. I have a whole lot more respect for now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, do you have any daily habits that keep you sharp and focused? Cause getting up in the middle of the night, wears you down after four or five days of that, unless you get a good night's sleep at some point, is that physical activity? What do something to keep your mind active every day? What are your daily non-negotiables? Well, yeah, I mean, we touched on one earlier, but like aerobic fitness, I find is like the best way of just keeping your mind alert and active. And even if you're overtired, it's just a great, a great way of getting through that. So, yeah, for me, doing some sort of activity every day, you know, is a must, you know, whether it's going for a run or a swim or I play futsal as well and soccer. So, you know, either a team based or, you know, solo you know, sport, I find is pretty important. And then for me as well, to, to kind of keep my mind alert and, and keep my mind learning, the other one I, I do every day and you know, actually combine them usually. So yesterday I went for a run while listening to a podcast, but I, I love listening to sort of podcasts, especially ones around the history of investing and, and market history. Nice. Um, Any favorites? My favorite w- would be, it's a Bloomberg podcast called Masters in Business. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they've interviewed, I think, over 200 now you know, market gurus. And these are people, you know, from, from younger people who have done well in investing to 70 and 80 year olds that have lived through all sorts of different times. But, you know, hearing about the times people have lived through that you haven't lived through, I think kind of gives you a, you know, a better understanding of, you know, how, how the world actually works. Yeah. Uh, so that one I, I love listening to and, and yeah, get very excited every week when a, a new one comes out and you get to listen to, you know, a, another expert in their field. Nice, nice. Well, I'll make sure there's a, a link to that show in the show notes as well, because I hate listening to podcasts and people mention other podcasts. I'm like, what was, what was it again? Where is it? So I'll make sure. Yeah, it's, it's a pet hate I actually have with this podcast. And I actually tweeted the um, presenter because every week, one of his questions is what is your three favorite books? And, and now I've, I've listened to these 200 podcasts, but I, I'm usually running, so I, I can't write down what those books are. And I'm curious, but I want to read these books. Yeah. And, and I actually, I tweeted him asking, hey, do you have a master list of all of these books that all of your you know, guests are recommending? And, and he said, no, it's something I'm working on. So He's got to yeah, go back and listen to all the podcasts to get all the books out. <laughs> exactly. I, I understand the pain. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure the notes are in there for us. Well, thank you so much, mate. As we wrap up the show, if people want to reach out and connect with you, where's the best place to do that? Uh, well, either on Twitter, so they can find me under Chris Brikey, or they can visit the Stockspot website, which is which is the company I run, and, and find our contact details there as well. All right, fantastic. And I'll make sure those links are included in the show notes as well. Well, that just about does it for the Go All In podcast today. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, just pop open your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you heard, 
don't forget to leave us a review because that helps a boatload too. And if you're on Facebook, don't forget to come on over and join the Facebook group. Just search for Go All In and you will find the Facebook group there. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks again for coming on, Chris. We really appreciate it, mate. We'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now. Thanks for having me. 